Well, good morning again. Thank you so much for being here. And I do hope you're planning to be a part of these two great events that are coming up just at the end of this week. It's going to be uh, an amazing time of learning and growing together. I know I'm already registered. Uh, Emily's registered. We're, we, we want to learn too. And so would you come and do that with us? We're going to jump back into our series that we're in throughout the summer where we're studying the book of Haggai and also the book of Leviticus a little later in the summer. And so we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to go through verses 1 through 9. We'll get there in just a moment. I want to set the historical context for where we are right now in the book of Haggai and what's taking place, both in the storyline of Scripture, but also in the storyline of human history. So last week I told you that you can kind of mark the Bible by seven different stages. You have creation, the patriarchs, Moses, Israel, exile, Jesus, and the stage of the church. If you go back to that center stage there, Israel, we know that God raised up Moses to bring his people out of Egyptian bondage. Joshua took over for Moses. There was a time period of the judges when they ruled, but Israel wanted a king. And so God gave them a king. And the kingdom was united under Saul, and then also with David, and then also with Solomon. But after Solomon, the kingdom divided. And in that division, you had Jeroboam take the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes, Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, Zebulun. Those tribes, known as the northern tribes of Israel, they fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., the southern tribes, there were only two of those, they were led by um, Rehoboam, there it is, and they were the southern tribes, they were taken into captivity in Babylon, and the temple was destroyed in the 590s. Now, Judah fell uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, in, again, the late 590s, but in the 530s, 539, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian rule. And so what we see is in 538, the three kings of Persia, King Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, released Judah to return home. Now, the interesting thing about this division in the kingdom is when you have the northern tribes taken off into captivity in 722, they assimilate into the Assyrian culture and they're never heard from again. But the southern tribes of Judah, who were taken into Babylonian captivity... These are the ones that returned. They were part of the remnant that returned back to Jerusalem when they were released. And we actually see this take place in Ezra chapter 6. In Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, we see it says, And the elders of the Jews built, uh, were built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, that's the prophet that we're studying, and his contemporary Zechariah. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. And so right here in human history where this transition of power is taking place in the world between the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians, that's where we are. So to put it in its larger picture, if you have the Syrians ruling from about 900 to 612, then you have the Babylonians ruling from 612 to 539, then you have the Medo-Persians ruling from 539 to the 330s, then in the 330s you have the rise of Alexander the Great, the Greek rule, there's a part of the time when this part of the world 
world in the Middle East was ruled by Egypt, and that takes us all the way to 63 BC when you have Pompey, uh, the Roman general, go in and siege and take over Jerusalem. So that's where we are from Rome coming into the first century all the way back to the Assyrian Empire. We're in that transition between the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. So that's where we find ourselves within history. Now, if we go to Haggai chapter 2, and remember that in chapter 1, God was challenging the people because even though they had returned from exile, a few things had happened. Number one, they had returned, and they started rebuilding the temple, but then they stopped, and they started focusing on their own lives and building their own lives and building their own houses. And so construction on the temple just stopped for about 15 years, some say. About 15 years, the temple is still lying in ruins while the people are building their lives. The interesting thing about that, again, if you go back to Ezra chapter 6, we see that when Judah is released to go back, this remnant goes back to Jerusalem. It is the kings of Persia who give them money to rebuild the temple. So in Ezra chapter 6, Starting in verse 4, it says, Let the cost for the temple be paid from the royal treasury. Verse 5, And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon, be restored back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You should put them in the house of God. So everything that was stolen by the Babylonians, the Persians are saying, take it back. Not only that, we're going to pay for the rebuilding of your temple. We see this in verse 8 of chapter 6 of Ezra. Moreover, I make a decree regarding uh, what you shall do for these elders of the Jews in rebuilding the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. And so we see this remnant go back. They do not go back empty-handed. They go back with money in order to rebuild God's house. But 15 years, a decade and a half have lapsed, and they've been working on their own lives. And so God sends this message through the prophet Haggai, build my house. And what we see is restoration take place as Israel repents. They're restored back into a covenant with God. They're back in agreement with that covenant. They're in agreement with who they are, who God is, and what their relationship is. That is the covenant. And then from that, we see revival take place. And the people are stirred up at the end of chapter 1 of Haggai. So we come to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we see in the 17th month, on the 21st day of the month, when the word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet Haggai. So right here where we are is, this is October 17th. So we're about three and a half weeks later after Haggai chapter 1. In Haggai chapter 1, Haggai gave his first message. We're now three and a half weeks later into the work of rebuilding the temple. Now what's interesting about this date is that the people of Israel have been living through some important moments in their life over the past few weeks. Over the past few weeks, they would have celebrated the Day of Atonement. Very important day we're going to learn about as we study Leviticus later on in the summer. But right now, where they are on October 17th is coming to the close of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a time when they remember what God has done in bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. So they're right in the middle of their fall festivals at this point. But here's the thing. The temple is not rebuilt. They are not celebrating the way they used to because the house of God has not been restored yet. The closest thing that I can think of for people like me and you to relate to this is a couple of years ago on Easter. 
couple of years ago on Easter, COVID is raging, and we have Easter Sunday, and what, what does the church tell everybody? Stay home. You can't come. These people are living with that reality every day. They're walking by a temple that was once so beautiful and glorious, and now it is still in ruins. They're working, yes, but they're living with that reality. So God speaks once again through Haggai to the people. Verse 2 says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, and right here God asks three questions. Three questions. Number one, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So that's a question about the past. Who here is still alive and you saw Solomon's temple? In all of its glory. Second question, how do you see it now? That's a question about the present. How does the former temple compare to what you are looking at right now? And the third question is, is it not as nothing in your eyes? In other words, are you disappointed? So right here, God asks three questions. How many of you were alive? We saw its former glory. How does it compare to now? And are you disappointed? And God is asking these questions to the people, to all of them. Notice, the leaders and the remnant. He's asking this question to all of them because there is a negative spirit and a negative attitude that is beginning to emerge among the people. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, 15 years earlier, when the foundation was laid on the temple, two things happened. Number one, some people rejoiced. They saw this as a great day, an amazing day, as, as God was restoring his people back to worship in his temple. Uh, so it, this was wonderful for some people, but Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 also tells us that some people wept. And they wept because what they were seeing being built again, rebuilt again, did not compare to the former temple, to Solomon's temple. And so in this moment, what we see, this negative attitude or negative spirit that is beginning to emerge among the people, it's there for a few reasons. Number one, simply, the temple does not look the same as Solomon's. Number two is that they feel the weight of having to rebuild this temple from the ground up. They feel the weight of having to do it all again. And then number three, even though they've been given money, to go back and rebuild, they're still living in a country that has been devastated. You see, you have to remember, they did not just experience an economic recession. What they experienced was devastation to their country. They did not experience just a stock market crash. Oh no, they had an international takeover of their land. And so even though they have money to come back, they still need the resources to build the temple. And so they feel the weight of all of this reality on them. And what they're beginning to see emerge as the temple is being built, it just does not look like what Solomon's temple looked like. And so all these emotions are running through them. They find themselves discouraged and in need of some encouragement. So God speaks to them in verse 4, and here's what he says. In verse 4 it says, Yet now, right now, in the present. Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. And now be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And now be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. He tells them to be strong. Notice every one of them, from the governor all the way down to the entire remnant. And then he says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, I want you to be strong, and I want you to work. 
I want you to be unified in your strength and your source of strength, which is God himself. And then I want you to work together. Because when we have God's strength plus our responsibility to do God's work and we act on that, that's what it means to stay loyal. And that's what God is calling the people to here. Three and a half weeks into rebuilding the temple, he, he's saying, I know you're discouraged, but I want you to stay loyal and stay to the task that I've called you to. But they are. They are struggling with this. They're struggling with all what all this means and what it looks like. And to stay loyal to God and his task, what he's calling them to do is to stay loyal even though the reality of life right now does not look like the way it once did. And every one of us understand this. We understand this in some way. When it comes to doing church, when it comes to the temple was the place of ministry and the place of worship. When it comes to doing ministry and when it comes to worship, there's so many things about the church that has changed over time. And there are things that we all live with. There's disappointment that we all live with because ministry and the world just simply does not look the same. And that's okay. What God calls us to is to stay loyal, even though, even though what ministry and what worship and those things look like have changed. That's what he's calling them to here in this moment. And in verse 5, he tells them to look back. He says, I want you to be strong. I want you to work, verse 5, according to the covenant that I have made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. He says three things right there. Number one, He references the covenant that was made. The covenant that was made at Sinai in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, God says that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he wanted for them. That's what he wanted them to be, to be a light to the nations. And at the center of that, you have worship and ministry taking place in the temple. In Exodus 29, 45, God says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Again, Haggai chapter 1, verse 8, as we referenced last week, this is what gives God pleasure. He wants to dwell among his people. That is the covenant that he made with them at Sinai. And then he mentions his spirit. Notice he says, My spirit remains in your midst. After they reestablish their covenant in chapter 1, after they come back into alignment with God in that moment, God's Spirit is with them. They are stirred up. And the people know, they know, that God's Spirit has been with His people throughout all of history. They know that God's Spirit was with Moses and the elders in Numbers 11, verses 17 and verse 25. They know that God's Spirit was with Joshua in Numbers 27, verse 18. They know that God's Spirit was with Saul, 1 Samuel 10, 6, and with David, 1 Samuel 16, 13, and on and on we see it. We see that God's Spirit is with His people throughout. And right here, God is reminding them, my Spirit is still with you. Therefore, fear not. Because of the covenant that we have made together, and we are in agreement in that covenant, and my presence is with you, you do not have to fear. You do not have to fear. And this is exactly what the people need to hear in this moment. But then he goes on in verses 6 through 9, and this is interesting. In verse 6, God reminds them of who is in charge. Verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. God says, I have the power to do that. Then, in verse 7, God is going to show the nations who's in charge. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. 
Then in verse 8, God tells the people not to worry because all the resources of the world belong to him. He says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. And then in verse 9, in verse 9, God tells the people that the future is going to be brighter than the past. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And then he adds this, and in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. And the question is, what does all of that mean? What does that mean? Well, there's a few different ways to look at it. I think there are three that apply. Two are partial fulfillments, and one, I think, is the ultimate fulfillment of what verses 6 through 9 actually mean. To talk about the treasures coming in, the nations coming into the temple, that language, some people point back to Ezra chapter 6. When the kings of Persia give this money, go, you know, to send it back to them to rebuild the temple, and they say, oh, it was fulfilled in that moment, in that action. I think that's partially true. But also what you have, some people point to uh, a temple that comes a little later. Right now, we are in 520 B.C. If you fast forward 500 years to 20 B.C., you have a man in the Middle East, uh, in the Palestinian area, and he's pretty narcissistic, and he wants to make a name for himself, and he makes a name for himself by going around doing building projects. His name is Herod. Herod is the one that rebuilds Zerubbabel's temple, and it is beautiful. It is amazing. It is the temple that Jesus does ministry in. It really is a beautiful thing to see. So some people point that in Herod rebuilding Zerubbabel's temple, that he is fulfilling what is being said in this prophecy here in Haggai chapter 2. I think that's partially it. And I think that's partially it, not completely it, because of the way the Bible talks about this prophecy in Haggai chapter 2. You see, if you have a Bible, go to uh, Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews first. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is this famous passage where it starts off, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then we get over to verse 18, and it begins to talk about this kingdom that Jesus has established and that we now are a part of. And in describing this kingdom that we are a part of, starting in verse 22, Hebrews 12, 22, it says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge over all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Then in verse 25, he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, him being Jesus. For if they did not escape when they refused, they being the people of Israel, refused him being Moses, who warned them on earth, much less will we, the church now, escape if we reject him, Jesus, who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, quote, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Haggai chapter 2, where we are. Notice what he says, verse 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken 
may remain. Therefore, let us, now the church, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. That is the context of Haggai, the book of Haggai, worshiping God. Let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That phrase reverence means holy fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So here's what's going on in Haggai chapter 2. Partially fulfilled when the kings of Persia give the money to go back. Partially fulfilled in Herod rebuilding Zerubbabel's temple. Ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus and the kingdom that he has established The way the writer of Hebrews looks at the prophecy of Haggai chapter 2 is that it points to the unshakable kingdom that we are now a part of and that Jesus is king over. And I believe this is the correct interpretation because of what is said at the very end of verse 9 in Haggai chapter 2. In this place, I will give peace. You see, the book of Hebrews tells us that there was no peace for the people in the sacrificial system. They had to keep coming back and keep sacrificing again and again and again, year after year, reminding them that, that there is no atonement for sin outside of what, Jesus, what God is going to do through Jesus, the Messiah. And it all pointed them to who Jesus was and what he would accomplish on their behalf, every bit of it. But right here, God is promising peace. And if we're going to have peace, we cannot have that peace apart from Jesus himself. I get that from Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus about this dividing uh, wall that's in the church between Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it says, Remember that you, Gentiles, were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Gentiles, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. The only place to find eternal peace is in Jesus, who has made us both one, both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, that's one new humanity, in the place of two, Jew and Gentile. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is Jews. His message was the same to the whole world. In me, you have peace. And so what we see taking place in Haggai chapter 2 is this ultimate pointing toward this kingdom that cannot be shaken and the peace that we can only find in Jesus the Messiah. Now you may say, Chris, surely he's talking about a physical temple, right? Well, we have to remember places like Hebrews 8.5. Hebrews 8.5 tells us that the things of earthly worship that we see in the Old Covenant, Hebrews 8.5 says, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
They point us to something beyond itself. It was not the end in and of itself. The temple was a means to an end, pointing us to a heavenly reality. And in Hebrews 9 verse 1, we see that now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. But verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared, when the Messiah appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, the greater, more perfect house, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We have to remember in this moment that ultimately the peace that we have is found in this kingdom that Jesus has established where he is king, where he is the new high priest forever, eternally in the heavens. And God has invited us into that kind of relationship because that is the only place where true peace can exist. Now, that's a whole lot of information. But let me give you about four application points for us today that I think parallel what the remnant is going through in Haggai chapter 2. And I want to point us back to Hebrews 12, because I think Hebrews 12, which is the chapter that quotes Haggai chapter 2, I think Hebrews 12 gives us the same message of what we're seeing in Haggai 2, this message of stay loyal, stay loyal to the task. Because again, Hebrews 12, 1 starts, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Here's how we do it, verse 2, looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, not what was taking place in the temple. That was a shadow pointing toward him. It goes on, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God on the throne. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That is the message of Hebrews 12. It tells us what Haggai is alluding to, to look to Jesus. You have to look to Jesus if you're going to stay loyal and follow him. So four quick points of application. Number one is that loyalty is tested when we feel disappointed. When we feel disappointment in life, that's when our loyalty is tested. That's exactly what was taking place with the remnant at this point in history. They were so disappointed about many things in life. Even though they've come back, even though God is blessing them in that process, even though they're building their lives, they're still living with disappointment. Number two is that loyalty is tested when we feel weak. The remnant felt so weak in these moments. Could we ever restore God's house back to what it used to look like? Can we actually do it and accomplish this in a way that truly reflects the nature of God? They're living with all those emotions in that moment, and so do we. So many times we feel so weak in accomplishing what it is that God has given us to accomplish, and that's okay. But those are moments when our loyalty is tested. Number three, loyalty is tested when we feel alone. Obviously, the remnant felt alone, even though they were there together as a group. That's why God is reminding them over and over, my spirit is with you. My spirit is with you. I am in your midst as you go about doing the work I've called you to do. And again, so many times we feel alone as well. We feel like we're all alone. We're the only one who cares about this particular ministry, this particular cause, this particular thing. We feel alone in that, and we're not. 
We're not. Not only does God have people that he wants to partner with us in that, his spirit is with us. We must never, never discount that. And number four, our loyalty is tested when we feel fear. Obviously, the people felt fear in this moment. That's why God is promising peace. So many times when we see what it is that God is, who it is that God has called us to be and what it is God has called us to do, fear just rises up in us. And we're not sure we can measure up. And the truth is we can't. That's why we have to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We have to stay focused there. You know, it's Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. You know, most of the battles we go through in life are not external battles. Most of the battles that we go through in life, they're internal battles within us. And most of the time, that's where the battle is constantly raging. But also, that's where our loyalty is proven in those moments. And our task, especially today if we find ourselves in a battle, especially if we find ourselves with a battle going on within us, our task is to look to Jesus because he is the only one that can give us the peace that we're longing for. Because he's the only one who gets to carry the title Prince of Peace. All of what is taking place in 520 BC is pointing us to this fact that there is this Messiah who has this kingdom and in that place is the only place of peace. And my prayer for you this morning is that you have it. And if you don't, you would receive it. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, in this moment, we ask for just that. We ask for your peace that only comes through your son. And Lord, we are very much aware for every single one of us that we have looked for peace in other places. And we have been left empty. And so, Lord, may we look to your son this morning from the most seasoned believer among us, or maybe look for the first time. May we look to your son, who is the only source of peace, who is the true temple, who has entered into the most holy place, who's sitting at your right hand on the throne. And may we receive the peace we need about whatever it is this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you for the peace that is available right now. I pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. Amen.